Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the world. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you that there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about what you see and hear and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point, to learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. Stefan is back this week, so you're spared another week of my implacable droning. In episode 47, Stefan and I recorded a short segment on Bitcoin maximalism. Our friends Myron and Jeremy of Mental Supermodels recently released an episode built on our initial insights. Today, Stefan and I return the favor by adding our thoughts to Myron and Jeremy's. We define Bitcoin maximalism, then discuss its advantages and disadvantages, and whether it's the best philosophy for realizing Bitcoin's promise of self-sovereignty. As always, we're building a community around Mentally Unscripted, so share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 54 of Mentally Unscripted. And you've got Scott here and Paul is back. And I'm actually looking at him. Uh, We do not have any questions as to who is on the other side of the signal chat. It is actually him here. (laughs) It's a real person. Yeah, I think we can rule out any sort of uh, nefarious activities on the part of his wife or something. Uh, So how you doing? Well, I'm doing okay. I'm I'm glad you covered for me. In reality, I was on a CIA mission. Uh, I can't say where, but it's very close to Russia. And uh, I was doing all kinds of uh, peaceful activities. No, I was I was sick. I was under the weather. Um, not sure what I had. Uh, I think the assumption is I got the big C. Um, and um, and uh, now recovering. So glad to be back in the in the fold and uh, back to the discussion. Right. I mean, where, where we all want to be 24 seven, 365 public discourse. Yeah, absolutely. And today we're going to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, so like I said, a couple episodes ago, you're the, you're the Bitcoin guy out of the two of us. So <laughs> the Bitcoin guy, there's right? no way I would have been able to carry an episode on my own uh, talking about Bitcoin. So we put it off for a couple of weeks and, and it's a good thing we did because our friends, Myron and Jeremy over at mental supermodels did a response to our episode 47, where we talked uh, not very long, but a little bit about Bitcoin maximalism. So those those guys, they expanded on the topic quite a bit. And, you know, first off, I mean, I, I applaud these guys for trying to punch up. I mean, you, you <laughs> put your spot in the world by punching up against your superiors. So, uh, you know, I applaud those guys for taking the chance. They failed I, miserably, I, but they took the shot. I, I do too. I can't believe they they had the, uh, the confidence to punch up. But, uh, you know, Listen, everyone's got to take their shot at times. And the fact that they did, kudos to them. Kudos to them. Yeah. I mean, you know, when Rocky got the opportunity, he went for it and, you know, he (laughs) lost, but I guess in the end he won. But that's right. So no, just kidding. Um, We've had Myron and Jeremy on a couple of times and they're uh, good guys and we're we're building a relationship with them offline. And so I think we're going to be seeing them on the podcast pretty frequently, I'm guessing. Yeah. No, they... um, you know, we, we both do shows focused on mental models and thinking. I, I love the way they deconstruct problems. They frame them. They do such a good job with organization. And, and I think that's what they did here is, you know, we had sort of a loose conversation about maximalism. It was based on a single tweet from a developer in the Bitcoin community talking about how maximalism uh, 
can be very toxic and repel people rather than bringing people into the fold. And so we had a long conversation about that, how what, how they related to tribalism, malformed tribalism. And what they did is I, I think they brought a lot of good structure to the to the discussion about how you can think about that. So I kudos to them. I, I think they they enhance the uh the dialogue. Yeah, I I do too. And uh, as always, I Jeremy I think came up with a new mental model or at least one that I think at least a framework that I think we can apply to a lot of things outside of Bitcoin when it comes to this idea of maximalism. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but first, I mean, what do you think about uh, Neil Young? Are you sad that he's no longer on Spotify? You know, I am just just totally deflated. I mean, that's the first song and the last song I want to hear when I open Spotify is anything from Neil Young. Uh, what, you know, his one song is one song, yeah. you know, um, in the free world is the only one I can even think of off the top of my head, but, uh, heart of gold, I think is another one. Right. I mean, we're really dating ourselves. So anybody like younger than us can be like, they, they really don't even know who, the, who this guy is. Um, you know, it, it's funny, right. Where we, we <laughs> you, you ask yourself so many questions when you see this, when someone wants to stand up to a platform for whatever reason, in this case, complaining about one of the hosts of the most popular or most listened to podcasts in the world, as, as far as I know, uh, saying that they're spreading misinformation. So now I'm going to take a stance and take my music off of this platform. You you really wonder, like, what are the power dynamics going on here, right? Um, I I just looked at this and thought to myself, does this what stance is this guy really making? I mean, another way you could look at it is, hey, hey, Neil, why don't you just start a podcast and, and go through and, and really talk about all of Rogan's idiocy? You could bring on as many doctors as you want that that tell you how stupid all of Joe Rogan's hosts are, and, and then you could you could plug that podcast. I mean, is isn't that isn't that a better way of dealing with this and saying, you know, I'm going to take my music away? Yeah, well, you, you mean fighting ideas with ideas? We can't do that because that requires some research and thought. So, uh, you know, when stamping your feet and whining and crying gets the same result, I guess that's just much easier for a lot of people. So, so what what is it in your mind, Scott, with people that feel so concerned with Joe Rogan having a a platform where he can speak to people whose ideas are non-consensus. I think that is a an accurate statement. But but by the way, when we say non-consensus, he has a variety of people on. As someone who's listened to him for many years and thought to myself, sometimes this is really interesting. Sometimes this guy is an absolute idiot. Um, I completely disagree with his position on something. I've never seen him as a moral authority, as a scientific authority. I have thought to myself, well, these are interesting discussions. And he brings people from with varying perspectives, maybe not on all topics, but on many topics he has. In fact, you know, in the topic of COVID, at the beginning and in, in uh, early part of 2020, he brought on um, a, a man who was, I think, from the University of Minnesota, who today works um, on the Biden administration's COVID task force. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the man's name, but he he had him on to talk about COVID, right? Um, and, and what we were going to expect. I mean, he had someone who is very much consensus. So why isn't that being brought up? Why, why are people so scared of someone sharing information that is non-consensus? Right. And that, that was Dr. Michael Osterholm. Um, was that his name? Okay. Thank yeah. you. Uh, yeah. And you're right. He did have him on early on in the COVID-19 situation. I don't know mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Uh, but then he all did. He also had Sanjay Gupta on, who is probably the mouthpiece 
for the establishment, someone who is on there speaking on behalf of what is essentially a network that is being paid by these pharmaceutical companies in right. the form of uh, advertising. Um, so he's, he, yeah, you're exactly right. It's like, why is that not being brought up? And why is nobody, at least that I've seen, uh, picking out the things that Rogan said that were supposedly so atrocious and uh, in rebutting them? Yeah. Did you see that thing with CNN where they were talking about how Rogan got fact-checked live on his uh, podcast? Um it was, uh, gosh, I can't remember his name. It was the, the journalist from Australia. So Joe Rogan said something oh, yes. about myocarditis on his podcast. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. journalist disagreed with them, and they went and looked online and found something that seemed to uh, seemed to support what the journalist had said. Um, <laughs> so, and, so, so, you, you yeah. know, and CNN's making fun of him. Oh, Joe, Joe Rogan gets fact-checked live on his podcast. And I'm thinking, like, you guys would never even let someone on your shows <laughs> would potentially disagree with right. you. And here's a guy right. who said, you know, I have this opinion. And somebody said, well, no, I think that's wrong. And so they looked it up. I mean, that's to me, that's not even a fact-check. That's a discussion. So, I mean, a fact-check so, is when somebody says something and then someone else goes behind their back or without them present and tries to and checks to verify if they were right or wrong. I mean, that two people sitting there saying, gee, let's, let's go look this up. We have a difference of opinion. Let's look this up. That, that does not seem like anything to be made fun of. Right. I completely, you know, you know, what just dawned on me, the difference between CNN and legacy media and, and their formatting today, not the, what it's always been, but what it's devolved to is there's a hero and a villain. Those are the discussions that you have. The hero has a perspective. The villain is there to be the the demon that you have to go hunt. Whereas what I take with with someone like Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman, other podcast people that have long form discussions is that they're they're going to what is what is truth and and, and people people can sit there and say oh my gosh I can't believe you 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 think that Joe Rogan is asking about truth if you look at his apology or whatever you want to call it, his explanation for Spotify. He said exactly what I just said. This is also a guy who, after he had two of these controversial people um, on his podcast, uh, Dr. Malone and the uh, the other gentleman who's a cardiologist. I actually didn't even listen to those episodes, um, but I, I know that they were considered controversial because of the subject matter that they talked about. Uh, he posted on his Instagram page, a uh, a critique, a three thousand page critique by Vinay Prasad, uh, who is also a doctor, someone I've mentioned on this podcast several times, uh, who who goes through all of the claims by those doctors and provides a rebuttal where he thinks it's appropriate, where he agrees and where he disagrees, and much of the language in there was very strong. Joe Rogan posts that on Twitter and on Instagram. He's saying, "Listen, guys." I had conversations with these other guys. Here is a critique. Please go look at it. Do you imagine CNN doing that? I mean, you know, I, I guess the question would be, were you guys there when we were talking about, I mean, the, the, the complaints with them is like, you guys got it wrong on weapons of mass destruction. You guys got it wrong on the financial collapse. You guys got it wrong on what we're doing with, with every element of our corporate bureaucracy and our and our governmental bureaucracy. And Trump and we're, we're, Gate. Yeah. They oh, still well, it. there we go. Four years of that. And, and I mean, I'm sorry, when have you brought on and, and actually said, okay, we got this wrong, we got to go back. And just to bring it right back, I mean, Joe Rogan is 100% correct when he points out at some claims that just a year ago were considered completely conspiratorial are now just accepted as fact. You know, and, and I, I, this absolutely blows my mind. Early on in the pandemic, they're talking about masks. You have the the CDC coming out with with Fauci saying the masks don't work, 
And the science hasn't changed around that, right? But he's saying the masks don't work. Then they're saying everyone needs to wear a mask. Like, again, where is the jumping through hoops? Where is the, the, the people sitting there saying, well, how did we get there? And today, today, this, this really gets me on. Again, replying back to Vinay Prasad. By the way, we're not doctors on here. Our job is not to give you medical advice or financial advice, any advice for that matter, right? What we're doing is, is talking about topics, giving you better ways to think about them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to suggest you go check out Vinay Prasad talking about what they're talking about right now, where I think Pfizer has asked for emergency authorization to give the vaccine to um, children as young as six months up to five years old. He, he talks about the benchmarks that they've set traditionally, he talks about the, um, what evidence that they're using to suggest that they should be giving the shots to people of that age. And he also contrasts that with uh, governments in Europe, uh, and now it could be other places as well, but specifically Europe, that have made a completely different decision on whether or not they should vaccinate this population of people. Is he a conspiracy theorist because he's going against what the what Pfizer is requesting and what people expect the CDC to point out as saying this is okay? His point is we don't actually have the medical data to suggest that this is the right thing to do. But but again, he's being called out as I mean, I, I imagine many people are saying, no, no, we have to give these shots to kids. This is a perfect example of where I, you don't you, you're asked a question, is CNN asking these questions of the doctors of the CDC? Are they are, do they have people on there looking at the data? I mean, Vinay Prasad seems to be doing it nonstop. I don't understand why he's the only doctor. It makes no sense to me. But yeah, they, again, they're they're gonna sit there and they're gonna criticize someone like Joe Rogan. I mean, it's I'm sorry, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. Yeah. And I think this demonstrates that it's not it's not about equal time for different opinions. It's about yeah. only allowing the opinion that you want to be heard. And I, for the life of me, I can't really fathom why people get so bent out of shape about this. And, you know, at the bottom line, I, I think we need to start learning to mind our own business. You know, <laughs> you do what's good for you. I'll do what's good for me. And I mean, we've got, you know, we've got the mentally unscripted empire building up here, right? So we're going to talk to each other and give each other advice, but Someone who I don't know walking down the street, I'm not going to, I know this sounds harsh, but I'm not going to get too concerned over whether they are getting boosted every other week or they're, you know, downing horse paste every morning. <laughs> I mean, they need to make their own decisions. And, you know, I'm focused on what we're doing here. I'm focused on my family and yeah. um, my friends, my group. Okay. And beyond that, I, I don't, necessarily have the time or the energy to care so much about what people are listening to and what advice they're getting, whether it's good or bad. And I just, I don't understand why somebody would feel like it's their place to demand that not only do they not listen to somebody they don't like, but they demand that no one else should be allowed to listen to them either. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think this might be a segue into our Bitcoin maximalism maximalism discussion, but I think people, they get married to an idea and they get wrapped up in it. It becomes so much that it becomes a part of their identity and they, they get that cognitive dissonance that makes them uncomfortable when they hear something that contradicts themselves, contradicts their mm -hmm. ideas. And they don't, they're not strong enough or willing enough to take a step back and say, okay, maybe I was wrong here. Maybe I need to update my position. They instead just, they double down, triple down, quadruple down on that one position. And when the evidence starts to get overwhelming that maybe they're wrong, they lash out in ways 
like this childish ways saying not attacking an idea with an idea but attacking an idea with um a, a, an emotional a visceral emotional response i guess um to just silence it yeah and these are not the type of people and i mean i'm not trying to like we all get emotional about things and so i'm not trying to like characterize these people as being subhuman or anything but this is the type of person, the person who's demanding that Rogan be sp- be silenced, that does not carry the world forward. Okay, I think if these people had their way, I mean, we would still, uh, you know, our maps of the solar system would still have the Earth in the middle of it, yeah. and we would still be burning, you know, young ladies at the stake, accusing them of witchcraft uh, because they don't want to allow any new ideas to come in. But we need those people who are brave enough to stand up and say, no, we think this is wrong or, or even to just stand up and say, well, you need to explain it more. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you've, you've, the evidence you're giving us is not, is not sufficient. You need to, to give me more evidence. Explain to me why I need to change. Explain to me why I need to stop going to work and why I need to start wearing masks and injecting myself with a vaccine to protect me against a virus that quite frankly may not be that dangerous to me. You know, you need to prove to me why I need to change. So, well, I, you, you hit on so many points there that it, we're all us, us of a generation that remembers the pre digital internet world and can, can contrast with some real fidelity. And what I mean by that was we have enough memories of what people did in terms of interactions before and after digital, um, really, I think are, are struck by how we've lost the civil, the ability to have this kind of discourse. And so the example I, I give is that, you know, my, my parents always share these stories about being, um, you know, they lived away from their parents. So it'd be months that would go by and then they would come home and then they would have these, these discussions at the house with their uh, siblings and their, their parents. So they're in their twenties and their thirties, um, where, Th- these discussions are having the table. They're very visceral. They're very um, argumentative. Everyone's going after each other. Oh, you, you you don't understand this. Have you read this? Right. And then in the morning, they they sit down, they have breakfast, and they go back to laughing. Right. There was a, there was an expectation that people could have differences of opinion, uh, different views on the world, and then they could come back and be what they really were, which was family. It didn't have to be so divisive. And let's remember that. Many of the topics that they were discussing in their minds were just as, if not more important in terms of the safety of those around them, the the livelihood that they had. I mean, things like, you know, how should the United States engage with Russia? Two nuclear superpowers during the 80s, during the 70s, right? Um, you, you have many people that have memories of the the Great Depression, then uh, which would be obviously my grandparents, but then they, they also have the memories of what, what's going to happen if a nuclear bomb is dropped or or nuclear missiles launched and our kids are in school, right? These are the types of considerations that they had. And they were just as passionate about these topics. But now we fast forward to where we are today and we have so many people, we've got digital representations of ourselves in these these new mediums, be it on platforms like Spotify or Twitter. And then we have our, our in real life world and they're 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 dealing with the new pressures of having a megaphone if you're on Twitter, that can speak to the entire world, uh, where uh, a comment that you made, maybe that's taken out of context, or maybe it was just a dumb thing you said, is now part of your lineage, is part of your identity for the rest of your life. We're dealing with all of these stressors at a point in which, in many ways, the world is safer, healthier, and better 
than it was 50, 60 years ago in terms of, you know, look at look at a lot of the outcomes and the data from from different uh, repositories, just like death counts and health rates and all that. In many ways, the long-term uh, growth rates are actually improving um, in, in the right direction. We should all be happy about that. But instead, we're just freaking out. We're just freaking out and we're getting upset with EP, with others and we, we can't communicate with others. And it it is something that has to change at some point. I just can't imagine this can continue to barrel down this way because um, we're just, we're too stressed out over it. And then we, we start thinking people are enemies. I mean, let's take some wisdom from older generations. They had to deal with, in a lot of ways, worse stuff than what we're dealing with. They seem to get do just fine. So sorry, my little, my, my second little rant for the day. You, you ready to yeah. talk about maximalist? Yeah. <laughs> No, that's no, that's all good. And like I said, I think a lot of what we were talking about, I think dovetails into the Bitcoin maximalism debate and and beyond. Like we were talking before we got yeah. online, I think we're going to see the same model, I guess, or framework pop up in the future. I mean, when it comes to discussions about climate change or you know any other you know earth moving catastrophe that is coming in our future. I think we're going to see the same thing. So uh, like I mentioned, uh, Myron and Jeremy over at Super Mental Models, Mental Supermodels, excuse me, um, did a response to our Bitcoin maximalism episode or segment, I guess. So we, uh, we, when we talked about it, we just scratched the surface. So they went a lot deeper into mm-hmm. it. So we, we, we're not going to let them have the last word. We, we want to dive deeper into Never. it ourselves and talk about it a little bit more. And this is an interesting topic. And I'm not, like I said before a few times, I'm not the Bitcoin expert. So mm-hmm. um, for me, the, a lot of this is new. Um, so do you want to, do you want to yeah, so, maybe so, kick it off here? Yeah. I can recap, and I think I mentioned it before, um, but just in, in for those who are new to cryptocurrencies, they don't spend any time in the cryptocurrencies uh, world, you have the, the original cryptocurrency is Bitcoin. Uh, and <clears throat> after that, you have a whole sort of... Uh, cottage industry, maybe that's the right term, of all these other projects that have, that have exploded or come out where some are trying to be additions to things like the Bitcoin network. Um, others are trying to, to uh, compete directly head on with Bitcoin by changing some of the features. Um, some are trying to be very different, smart contract platforms uh, like Ethereum, uh, which are actually trying to be able to um, do if-then logic and loops. So you have that, but that that just even that just scratches the surface because what you've seen in the last several years is is protocols um, which are networks or chains. We we have a lot of different language, which I think is one of the reasons people get so confused about cryptocurrencies. But uh, they're trying to do very niche type of activities with these chains, uh, and you know a lot of it has to do in, in what they call the DeFi space. They've got liquidity um, protocols that are trying to provide liquidity to marketplaces so that they can make trades. You've got loan protocols that are trying to fill gaps where people are trying to loan off of margin, um, and then and then reinvest that money or or to use it for other types of business activities. And then you've got the NFT space where you're actually trying to using a smart contract um, to actually create this uh, unique piece of of digital um, a unique digital element. It's a it's an exploding world, all kinds of new ideas. But it, you know where does it come back to? Well, the very first one idea was was Bitcoin. And so there are some people that believe that the Bitcoin um, 
Bitcoin ecosystem is the only ecosystem that should exist. It has the capabilities to solve the problems that must be solved. And therefore, focusing energy and resources on any of these other networks is a waste of time. It's futile. Uh, and, and in many cases, it's scammy. It's trying to um, actually just extract money from people and confusing the marketplace. And so uh, what, what happens is that people, they, they call this maximalism. Um, or at least that's what it's been called in the past is this idea that you have a maximalist, they only bring in one chain. It's usually applied to Bitcoin. Uh, although you're starting to see maximalism exist in, I think, other um, subgroups or subcultures like Ethereum. I, I've met some Ethereum maximalists that believe that th- it is the only chain that will ever survive and provide value. And with the maximalism comes this idea of it's my way or the highway. I think that is that is the most common criticism is that the maximalists they they don't spend time thinking about other people's arguments they they instead have more of a religious fealty to their project or their network and and because of that they dismiss any any ideas and so what what could be one problem of that well for people that are not um, that criticize or are critical of the Bitcoin maximalists they look at the Bitcoin network and they say well it can't run smart contracts. What about all this other great utility that you get with something like Ethereum, uh, where you can create NFTs, where you can create um, financial products and protocols that are related to it, and you can have all these other chains? You can't do that, so why are you being so critical of smart contract layers? And so I think that's a that's a negative side of this. And what we talked about was this concept of just sort of malformed tribalism, where your, your tribe becomes the only identity that you have. And I think that is an element. I think there's there's negativity. There's there's negative aspects when when your tribe becomes so indoctrinated that you're not able and capable to to take new information, synthesize it, understand what it means, analyze it, and see if you need to upgrade your model. I think that is sort of the mal the malintention or the, the malformed tribalism. But there are it's a spectrum, <laughs> and and I think what what the guys uh, with Jeremy and Myron talked about was the fact that, well, while there could be sort of this toxic element, um, there's a, there's another end of the spectrum, which you have no conviction, no beliefs, no nothing. You just kind of go with the wind. And then there's there's other segments, you know, in as you, as you kind of build this up. Uh, so do you kind of want to go over the three? They had con- convictional, as, as we heard from their, their discussion, they have this convictionalism, maximalism, and toxic maximalism. Yeah. So starting the three, the distinction between the three is based on um, how open they are to new ideas. So the convictionalist or convictionalism, that, that person has a strong percent, a strong opinion that they actively pursue, but they're also open to other ideas. So these are the people that I think um, if we wanted to draw a parallel would be like Joe Rogan, um, got his opinion, but is always willing to listen to other people. Then you've got the maximalist and that's a strong, strong opinion, but is unwilling to change. So they they don't necessarily go out and attack others, but they also don't want to listen to uh, other opinions. And then you have the toxic maximalist, and those are the people with the strong opinions, and those and they're going out and actively putting down other people. So those those are the three levels. And I think it was really neat the way um, Jeremy characterized people as you know if you're talking about a maximalist, then that's somebody you don't need to pay a ton of attention to if you already know what their ideas are. Um, so if you um, keep listening to their podcasts or reading their writings, you're just going to be saying the same ideas over and over again. Uh, so you can, 
Yeah. What I was I was going to ask was, did he mention pomp as kind of a maximalist? I, I think he. I did. think he did. I didn't write I it down, but yeah. And for and for those listeners who are unaware, Anthony Pompliano is a a uh, a Bitcoin supporter, very prominent profile on Twitter. Uh, also does a lot of interviews. I think on like MSNBC and and other outlets. And uh, yes, he's very much. Um, very pro Bitcoin thinks it's the the path to go. He's stated several times he's not he doesn't have any allocation to any other cryptos, only Bitcoin. Um, that said, um, I've seen where he, six seven months ago where Ethereum had this great price rise. Everyone was talking about how how fantastic the Ethereum price was. He said, you know, congrats to this community. Uh, and I know he's spoken to some people that are that are um, not necessarily aligned with his philosophy. So he he's not he's not toxic. Right, I think under this definition, he he fits, but he is very much the maximalist. Right, and I know he mentioned um, Michael Saylor and Max Kaiser also, and I I believe they were higher up the chain or down the chain, I guess depending on how you want to look at it, is than um, <laughs> Anthony Pompliano. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was pretty. I thought that was an interesting take when you know when we talk about information overload and you've got your information architecture, your information paradigm. Um, you can almost take your maximalists and your toxic, uh, I mean, your toxic maximalists, you probably don't even want to pay much attention to anyway, um, but your maximalists and s- slot them in as I've heard them. I know what their position is. Uh, I'm probably not going to get anything new out of them. So I, I don't need to put as much effort into uh, listening to them uh, and and taking it to a broader, broader perspective. We're, I mean, we're going to keep talking about Bitcoin here, but I think this framework is good to apply other areas like we were talking about with the COVID Rogan thing. I think you can break people down into this convictionalist, maximalist, toxic maximalist framework um, when it comes to climate change. I think even though we may not be seeing it yet, I think I mean, we might be seeing a little bit now, but in the future, we're going to be able to see it. So mm-hmm. as as these situations or issues erupt around the world, we can start taking people and categorizing to determine um, how much how much we should really pay attention to them. Because I would I would say like a toxic maximalist is somebody who is I mean they are so toxic they don't even want to listen and they're going to attack anyone who disagrees with them. So like I said, those those people probably don't have opinions that are even worth listening to because you're not going to get thoughtful responses or arguments back from them. Those are the yeah, people. You know, who can, yeah, I was going to say those are the people who engage in the ad hominem attacks and um, like we said before, stamp their feet and just act like a petulant child. Well, and, and it it almost seems like it it aligns to this activist class mindset, which has seemed to be more prominent of late, where you just see these mobs of people. We talk about cancel culture as an example. It's an activist class, right? That says that you, we have to do something about set activity. And so canceling someone is is erasing them. It's it's part of this mentality. I, I And when I think about how you're describing toxic maximalism, it, it seems to be, it takes that characteristic of that behavior and it puts it in with a mindset, right? So the mindset is that if you've said something that is uh, gross by these standards that we've set, then you deserve to have this type of punishment. Uh, not just that we disagree with what you said, um, which I think could be at the maximalism stage, but that we have to do something about it. And you, you are seeing that. You're seeing that with COVID now. Uh, as you said, the Joe Rogan is a great example. You, you see it with the, the people that are wanting more, um, how do I put it? They're, they're seeking out authority to be able to clamp down and, and take this to a step further. They, they want people to lose their jobs. 
um, if they're they're not doing the right behavior. They want the, the cops to step in and arrest children um, who aren't wearing masks at school. You know, that, that kind of behavior, I, I look at that and I think to myself, I, you've gone from maximalism at some point and then the trigger of fear, which came in from COVID, moved you very quickly over to toxic mac- maximalism. Um, of of these topics where you can't even have a legitimate discussion about what facts or new facts we're obtaining. Maybe we should be changing our mindset on uh, some of the the protocols and behavior um, because it just it goes it runs against counter to your um, or it, or rather it, would, it not that it runs counter it would open up this idea of fear like you've made a commitment to the wrong idea. Um, I, I I don't think I think I think what we've seen with COVID is just the start. I do too. And um, to take it up a level, you know, we could say there's people with an opinion, people without an opinion, and then the people with an opinion, right? They, they would break down into the convictionalist, maximalist, toxic maximalist. And I wonder, and the people without an opinion, I think those are the people who are willing to admit that they don't have enough information and they don't really, they haven't really thought about it or looked into a question enough. Um, but I wonder how many people in the toxic maximalist are the people who don't have a lot of information, but are just responding to what they're hearing other people say. You know, the person who wakes up in the morning and logs into Twitter to see who they're supposed to hate that day without any <laughs> yeah. questioning why. Um, yeah, right. So, um, well, well, I mean, but that, does that not come back to our concept of tribalism? Like people having a, a desire to, to be part of something to be part of a tribe. And that isn't bad. But what we pointed out in the last discussion was this concept of just a bad tribalism or malformed tribalism, but toxic tribalism, if you will, where you not only want to be part of a tribe, but you want other tribes to die, right? Um, and, it, and, and what's really fascinating is in, in so many regards, the consequences aren't clear. Especially on the on the online space where you're going, no, that that tribe shouldn't exist. It should never exist. I'm willing to to stamp it out, which is very different from tribes like in different parts of the world over the you know the history of humanity that actually had to kill the tribes because they they were competing for said resources, right? Um, but that 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 desire to have that tribe still exist, and you you do wonder how many people just. They, they find their tribe. I'm now part of it. They can't just be the maximalist. They have to go a step further because they have this, this desire to stamp out. Um, very, very, very negative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to put it, but I, I think it's just very, very, very negative. Yeah. But so my question would be is do let us, let's go to Bitcoin specifically. Do we need a certain sector of the community to do that, to keep people focused on the goal and so, I mean, the, the grand idea behind Bitcoin is self-sovereign, right? Um, privacy, um, self-custody, right? Controlling your own finances, your own life. Um, and so you're not subject to this, you know, Great Reset-esque global behemoth that is spying on us and tracking everything we do. So do we need maybe some of those toxic maximalists to keep people focused on that end goal? to keep people from going too far astray. Um, Cause I imagine that there are a lot of people who are involved in some of these altcoins that they really aren't on the same level technologically or socially as Bitcoin is, but they, they are very smart people who would be, we'd be better off if they were focused on Bitcoin. So could those maximalists, those toxic maximalists possibly bring those people into the fold and keep them focused? Or is there just too much of a chance of them chasing these people out of the ecosystem entirely? 
You know, the, the, the start of this conversation was the concern that you raised in the last point, which was that you were pushing people away from the ecosystem rather than being a magnet to bring them in. So we're actually repelling people with this toxic maximalism. The other side of the argument is exactly what you said that I've heard people talk about the, the, the new power is memes. Like they're understood. Memes have always been around. The, the concept, I think, has been popularized by Dawkins. But the, the internet and specifically platforms like Twitter are, um, are tools for magnifying memes and concepts and ideas. And that you're, you combine the idea of money being uh, this, this digital element uh, that is really about sovereignty and, and choice, freedom, and that you are able to achieve that with something like Bitcoin. And it goes on, it propagates more heavily with the maximalist and then the questionably the toxic maximalist. So in their minds, they're saying we're defending this meme from the battle of the other memes, right? It's not, it's not sufficient that we've put the memes out there. We have to continue to battle for these ideas. And therefore, uh, we need people that are more, um, they're going to argue and fight for these ideas and, and look to actually stamp out other tribes. And it's, it's not clear to me what is, what is the most accurate representation. I mean, I, I, I think when we see people trying to cancel other people, um, trying to cancel other ideas rather than to debate them, it, it seems to me to be counterproductive, right? The, the, the cost that you bear when you've canceled somebody, you no longer have to hear their ideas, but they're no longer, um, you, you just look like you, you didn't really win the game, right? You just, you just found a, a way to cheat and get them off the table. So I, I, I find it more, um, more compelling that you have people that are willing to debate, willing to engage and respect the, the other uh, opinions or views. And um, I, I find it less compelling when you have people that are, that are trying to create swarms to, to go after the, and do the attack. And that may just be a personal preference. I mean, you know, as, as, as someone who, as you've said before, you're, you're not as familiar with the space, you're coming into it, you, you have um, sort of, you feel strongly about self-sovereignty, about the principles that we talk about. Do you care if it's achieved with Bitcoin or a different token? Does, does the toxic, ma- like toxic maximalism, does it appeal to you? Or does it does it turn you off? Yeah, from the standpoint of my crypto portfolio being mostly Bitcoin, <laughs> selfishly, <laughs> yeah, I want Bitcoin to win. But of course, yeah, um, no. But in the end, I don't care if it's Bitcoin or Ethereum. What I want is not to ju- to not just have a store of value, but I want the smart contracts and all of the other things that crypto has to offer. That, to my knowledge, Bitcoin doesn't doesn't do. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? I mean, Bitcoin is basically a store of value. And I guess with the Lightning Network, it can now be a, um, a, a layer that allows everyday transactions, but it doesn't allow smart contracts. Right. So yeah, I think that's a generally that's that's a correct statement. There's, and I think Myron actually talked about this on their podcast, how the, the most specific difference between um, scripting languages is that they, you can't have a loop in the Bitcoin, it, it can't process a loop the way you can in uh, Ethereum. Now you go down like more layers. There's, there's many, many, many differences, right? There's a virtual machine um, that's processing logic. That um, while well, you do have scripting language on Bitcoin, a lot. So I, I believe some of it's even been turned off. Um, that that said, there's there's 
big questions about how all of that comes together in terms of where do we process logic? Uh, should that be done on chain, off chain? Uh, if you look at the rollups uh, that are being proposed. So there's a bunch of scaling solutions for Ethereum because they've they've also realized in the Ethereum community, which was um, debated a couple of years ago, but like in order to to actually scale this so that they can process the number of transactions to be equivalent to a Visa or a payment network, you're going to have to distribute out the processing. Um, okay, I'll, I'll say generally, like the processing logic to additional layers. Right, um, which is what Bitcoin, uh, many of these maximalists, uh, and I would say the less toxic maximalists, but I mean the maximalists have been saying for a while is that in order for you to be able to scale and maintain some degree or a high degree of censorship resistance and decentralization, you're going to have to use secondary layers. In the case of pay, uh, payments, they're talking about that with Lightning. Um, so, but to come back to your question, well, you you want the full um, smorgasbord of capabilities, and Bitcoin by itself can't do it, right? In, in the sense that, like, it doesn't actually have that that capability built in. I think, I think there's, the, you know, if you, if you parse what you're saying, it's really a question. How, you care less about how we get there as long as we maintain some of the principles, right? In order to have self sovereignty, you have to have chains that are uh, censorship resistant, that don't care which, uh, which people have access to the blocks. And they're not actually saying you, you are allowed, you're eligible, and you aren't, right? That is such a core element to this idea of self-sovereignty. Uh, because as, as we've seen, and we've, we talked about in previous episodes, if your bank can basically say, well, I know who you are, you're no longer allowed to bank here. Um, and we just saw this with a very high-profile Trump supporter, I think Mike Lindell. His bank in, uh, I want to say Minnesota, said we're no longer going to be working with you. Um, and I and I really pray that I got the details right on that. But I, I remember reading that, and uh, let, let's assume it it is true uh, for the sake of this discussion. The the problem there is, you know, there's many good reasons maybe you have for why someone like him, you don't want to be banking at the same place as him. You don't like his political views. You don't like what he did during um, the election, uh, thinking that he's spreading conspiracy theories, all that, right? Well, then the opposite is that we've kicked them out of society. And who gets to decide who gets kicked out of society? Um that that's that's fundamentally what we're talking about here, which goes back to this idea of sovereignty that the individual does have rights um, that are given that are that are well beyond the government. The government doesn't get to decide it. We have them by virtue of being humans, individuals, and and tools like Bitcoin are going to give us that. So um, how we get there is what matters, right? Or, or or the fact that we maintain those principles as we're going to where it's going. Um, so I I guess what I'm hearing from you is. You could be attracted to many different solutions that kind of achieve those principles. Uh, so, okay, so that, that makes you more of a convictionalist, I would say. But, but specifically, if you have the toxic maximalists that are saying you're an idiot if you go use these other chains, um, or you're an idiot because you, you're most of your portfolio is in Bitcoin, and it's not Ethereum. What does that do in terms of you know acting as a magnet or a repellent? Yeah, and so my question around this is. If I don't know if if I wanted to fly, okay, I would I would not be able to just buy a car. So having somebody say no, we should not put any resources into helicopters and airplanes. All the resources should be put into cars, okay. But but I want to fly, <laughs> so I need, <laughs> I need somebody to put the resources into these other things. Right, and this is what right. where I'm falling. This is where I'm losing 
the connection about the logic behind these Bitcoin maximalists. If I want the smart contracts, then why why get rid of the blockchain that um, allows for the smart the smart contracts and just focus on the blockchain that doesn't? Yeah. So uh, good. I think I think that's the the fundamental question, right? Are there use cases that are super valuable that require a smart contract and since you can't do them on something like Bitcoin, uh, why do we have a problem with these other smart contracts? And I'll, I'll be honest, having looked into smart contracts in the time that I have, there's a lot of questions about how valuable they actually are. And what I mean by that is there's putting putting logic in. Uh, I, I think they've done an amazing job in terms of DeFi, building up all the capabilities that they have in of... Um, Using contracts, right? You could you could ask the question though. I guess are these are they are they achieving censorship resistance uh, at at all times, uh, or do they have faults that we're we're not really sure of? Do they have risks that that we're not really sure of that make them less censorship resistant, and therefore would they then have to compete with more centralized um, solutions? Are are they really achieving a promise? And I think a lot of people look at all the money that's gone into these contracts and they make the argument, well, yes, they have. I, I'm not sure that I'm bought into that, which I know sounds pretty um, heretical. I mean, how, how else do you measure adoption rates, right? Um, well, you look at TVL, or you look at some of the metrics that have come out and said, okay, well, they're, they're getting money uh, into these contracts, therefore they must be adopted. But it's also possible that it's primarily a speculative frenzy um, that has attracted all of this money. And that what we're going to find in a couple of years is that most of these contracts go to to near zero because the utility isn't quite high. So I think it's it, it's a it's a difficult question to ask or difficult question to answer rather is how far you know how much utility are we getting from smart contracts that we can't get with scripting language in Bitcoin, um, and, and how how confident are we that the utility that's being developed with these smart contracts has is sustainably useful for for the goal again of censorship resistance of of, of self-sovereignty I don't have the answer to that frankly and but it's one of the reasons that I, I think I'm you know if someone asked me well, what's your stance like I'm very much pro Bitcoin um, conceptually and what I understand about the technology I also think it's possible that layers will be built on top of Bitcoin over time. That today seem less efficient than an Ethereum, but um, actually model more closely to network models where you do, you're building on layer upon layer upon layer upon layer that allows you to do more functionality. It's not just on a single chain. I think that is a a, a real likelihood. Um, I'm not a technical developer. I'm not. Um, I don't have the expertise there. So I'm sure there's. And I've heard many technical people tell me that that's that's not the way it's going to work. Um, but I think that's a that's a possibility. Yeah, and if anybody out there knows an experienced uh, crypto developer, um, introduce us to him because we'd love to have them, him or her, on the podcast <laughs> uh, to explain all that's this. Because right. I don't understand what the limitations are either. But yeah. when we talk about building it all on top of the Bitcoin network, though, this idea of self sovereignty. I mean, this is pretty high stakes. I think to me, this could be the make or break technology of the future if we don't want to get wrapped up into that um, Great Reset-esque uh, <laughs> massive global behemoth. So 
do we want to put all of our eggs in one basket? And what happens if Bitcoin just dominates everything? And is it now susceptible to being taken over by a government? And then we just end up right back in the same position that we're in now? Yeah. My, my, my thinking is that the, first of all, I don't, I don't know the answers to all that, right? I, the, the game theory looks a little weird at the limit when you start to see like, what, what, what does that actually look like? We, we talk about the, the individual having self-sovereignty, um, having this freedom outside of institutions. Um, and so let's just play, what does that game look like? Like imagine if your identification was accepted by all citizens, um, because it was, it was a universal protocol, right? And a universal protocol could be something like email. Everyone understands email. They, they send email. You can find a way to open an account, to have an email account. Um, everyone, everyone understands that, right? Uh, globally, right? Or most, most people do. Um, could you do something similar with identification? Um, and and you know, I'm, I'm thinking, because I, I was just reading about ION, uh, I-O-N, uh, which is a project I think that came out of Microsoft, which was actually to develop a, a decentralized identification network. And it, it's, it's one example of, could this build up over time to be uh, a set of protocols that, are, that exist beyond the institutions, right? Where we're not actually looking for institutions to provide these tools that the internet uh, itself is able to be the infrastructure. And then citizens, by virtue of saying, well, we, we accept this over what our government's giving us, are, are validating it, right? And so you, you have this a variety of ways in which this could play out. One of those is that you, you start to have the adoption of tools that exist outside of governments uh, and it hits critical mass, and therefore governments are are then asking themselves, you know, what value is in kind of taking it down, right? They they actually are encouraged to work with it, and you see a little bit of this playing out right now, where you know, in the state of Texas and Arizona, there's there's uh, been legislation proposed just recently to actually consider Bitcoin legal tender to change its tax treatment, um, and they're competing for developers and you know, new engineers to be able to come there and develop new solutions based on Bitcoin. Um, and it's primarily Bitcoin. It could also be other currencies as well. But uh, Bitcoin is the one that has the most clarity in terms of regulation, uh, which still isn't very clear, but it's it's clearer than than the other tokens. So you, you, you have this weird thing where on one hand you're saying, well, governments want to take it down, but governments are actually competing against each other for resources, for, for mind share, for skill share, um, for, for citizen share that if they're the ones that are willing to, uh, to offer up, um, you know, Bitcoin sovereignty, self-sovereignty, do they have an advantage, right? Which would then suggest that they don't actually want to take down one of these networks. They actually want to encourage the development of it. And so, you know, Russia coming out, I think, in the last two weeks talking about how, I think it was even Putin talking about how he actually thinks that they have some advantages in Russia with cheap energy that, you know, for mining Bitcoin. Um, you've, you, you, in, India just came out after two years of saying they're going to completely ban it. Now they're going to tax it at a high rate and they're going to introduce the digital rupee. So are, 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 are governments going to be incented to try and take it all down? Or at some point, are we going to see critical mass where they're incented to actually play with it and encourage it, right? And and then you, you get into some really weird games where I think most people would hear what I just said and say, okay, that's just beyond, you know, not going to happen because governments never want to give up control. They never want to give up power. Um, and they have the guns and the military to do it. Well, okay. 
I mean, I, I can't argue against that. They're the ones with all the, the purse strings today. But what you don't, what you also have to ask is like, okay, well, what's going to happen when the debt levels continue to rise in the United States when China and Russia say, listen, we no longer want to use the US and they've actually cr- created enough clout to actually move away from denominating all energy contracts in dollars. Russia, again, has also just talked about that, wanting to actually do gas contracts with the European Union in euros. Well, that lessens, you know, that, that changes dynamics is my point. And I don't think any of these people that want to sound super smart and tell all of us, you know, crypto people that were absolute jackasses for looking into this stuff, I don't think they have a clear picture of exactly how this plays out. Anybody who does, I think is lying. They're, they're, they're trumping their own card. They can have ideas. They can put probabilities behind it. But if you think you know exactly what's going to happen, you're a liar. So I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I love the idea of sovereignty for individuals. I mean, think about the fact that you have billions of people that are unbanked and governments that have the incentives to bank them, but still don't do it. What if we could solve that? I mean, that'd be absolutely freaking amazing, right? For, for all of humanity, right? What if, what, if, what if governments actually were terrified of pissing off their citizens and invading a country? So instead they had to actually go to the table and negotiate. I mean, wow, what a novel concept. Like that's the one thing I'm going to say this that really bothers me whenever I hear these people um, that just want to totally trash crypto and like, oh, you guys are all a bunch of morons. Like none of them have any, uh, you know, they may say that they they don't want war, but then they talk about all these realities. Like at least people in this space actually want a better world. I mean, they really do. They they want less conflict. They want less war. They want more uh, negotiation. They want to see the rest of the world being like, you know, thriving and surviving. Um, At least that's my experience with people. So, you know, you military, neocon, whatever the hell you want to call it, you people that believe in institutions, remind me again what you're doing. And I think that there's a great point there. Uh, I think we shouldn't be so hasty as to group all governments together. There's different layers of government, different levels of government. A state government like Arizona, which I just, when you brought that up, I went and did a quick quick search, Bitcoin Magazine. Were you, you fact checking this fact checker? Yeah, is that what I you're was. doing? <laughs> um, Bitcoin Magazine is, there's something on here about, I guess, just last Friday, a bill hit the floor of the in Arizona that would make Bitcoin legal tender. So that looks like that's definitely, something's happening there. But anyway, so I could see a state like Arizona or Wyoming, you know, one of these states wanting to legalize Bitcoin in order to to attract um, developers and, and, and companies into the state so they can strengthen their own economy. Because in the United States, I mean, no state can print its own money. It doesn't have the f- power of the Fed and the federal government. So the states are effectively competing against each other to try to draw business and um and people into the state to boost its economy. But when you talk about the U.S. government, right, the U.S. government uses the SWIFT banking system to essentially try to control the world. And if there's an alternative to it, then they're going to, the government, they've, they've got a strong interest in putting that down. So at one level, you know, you might have the state governments pushing this and at the, ne- the next highest level, the federal government is saying, no, 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 no. So I think that's, there might be some tension there. Um, oh, yeah. And how that all plays out. Um, because- like you said, right? If if Russia and Iran, Iran and and North Korea and China, if they have access to a system that can bypass the systems that the that the U.S. controls, that gives them a lot of power, mm-hmm. uh, and it takes away a lot of the power. Probably more more appropriate is it takes a lot of the power away from the U.S. government. So that's that would be an, that's going to be an interesting tension there. I think. Yeah, and I think. It, 
Sorry, go on. You know, and I was thinking, I wonder, this might just be a little bit of a parallel to the marijuana question here in the U.S., where the federal government still says it's illegal, but the states are legalizing it left and right um, in order to, you know, boost their economies, get that tax revenue, and to Mm -hmm. keep people happy. Because, you know, everybody's happy when they're smoking pot, so. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So that's, yeah, that's an interesting idea. One I hadn't thought of is these different, different governments are going to have different incentives. They, they, they absolutely will. And, and I think there is a, um, I, here's an exercise I think anyone can benefit from. If you go on uh, YouTube and go find someone in a, in a country like China, like Russia, if you're a U.S. citizen, right? Um, Venezuela, whatever, local people talking about their country. And you, you, if you if you haven't traveled, if you haven't had the opportunity to engage with a lot of people and you do that, you realize how many people just want to live. They just want to be, they just, it, it's simple human desire to create a family, to create a home, have some level of security and safety, uh, and then be able to have joy um, from, from those interactions with your family. I mean, it's, it's really common everywhere. And we forget that because the, the, the narrow lens that we get on any type of, uh, you know, <clears throat> commercial uh, news service is, is leaders who are talking with uh, very inflamed language, if you will, they're completely dis, you know, disconnected from, from the people on the ground. But at the same time, those leaders at some point have to respect the fact that those people on the ground aren't necessarily going to do what they want them to do. What they want in life is not what these leaders necessarily want. Um, so there's, there's going to be the tensions internally. There's going to be the tensions between countries. There's going to be the um, the opportunities for regimes that um, you know. If you're Saudi Arabia, as an example, you get military support from the United States with with your primary regional, um, uh, I would say, combatant or the, the country that you're most concerned with, which is Iran. Okay, you and that's the 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 benefit of the United States military being in there and protecting all the oil. That that's Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia just signed a deal with China, and they're they're effectively showing. Well, wait a second. If we if we nudge a little bit over here, we can play off China and the U.S. Right? Because they have they have conflicts, right? And China they may not care about Iran or what we're doing with Iran, but they sure as heck care about the safety of of oil moving, right? So why isn't Saudi Arabia going to be looking at how to play off these people? Why why wouldn't you? Right? Is it in the best interest of Saudi Arabia? Probably. Right. Uh, so, yeah, th- the game theory becomes really, really odd, really, really odd over time. Um, and, and that's where I think most people are um, really missing out on where it's possible something like this could go. Because, you know, people talk a lot about the reserve currency status of the United States dollar. And there's a lot of debate about whether it's going somewhere else or not. But the truth is, to replace the dollar, you have to have. Um, you really have to see the behavior change, which is you have to reprice dollar contracts around the world. And then you've got to have changes in your central banks. And there's no currencies that everyone can agree to. Because I mean, the US dollar is basically agreed to after World War II, um, you know, with, with the powers that be, right? It's, it's, you know, it's a smoke-filled room with a bunch of cigars and brandy and people say, hey, well, we're going to use the US dollar. Part of it has to do with like the Marshall Plan that came after it. But putting all that aside, you really think governments are going to now be able to select a new currency? I don't think so. What could happen, though, is that uh, you know, in a, in a smoke-filled room, I'm struggling with that. But I could see where where countries are still playing playing off each other, and they start using other currencies. I'm going to throw the Scotopia buck in the ring for the new uh, reserve currency. I, I've heard it's really good. 
really, really good. All kinds of excellent economics, good tokenomics. Yeah. I love it. So, so far, there's only one person in the world who accepts it, but we'll be changing that. <laughs> good enough. Good enough. As, as long as you can find one other person, one right, other person, right. you're good. Well, when, once Scottopia invades the neighbors, takes over the neighbors, um, there'll be more people taking it. So, all good. right. Good, good, good. <laughs> all right. Um, so, anything else? That was a good discussion. Got anything else on Bitcoin maximalism? I really like that framework we talked about. I think Jeremy really um, hit on something there. Yeah, you know, uh, they, they had a lot of other really good commentary. Uh, one of them that I did want to point out without getting into all the details, Myron talking about the the rate of adoption, the rate of innovation off uh, the Bitcoin network, uh, where a lot of criticism is that it doesn't move as quickly. You can't just build off of it. This is what you hear from a lot of people that are working on smart chain contracts like Ethereum. Um his, I think, argument is more that it's moving at the proper place of adoption, uh, where you know the, the solutions and tools that they're building out is going to be able to meet demand as it's actually needed, rather than being, you know, having all this creativity and build up for things that aren't really needed. And I think, I think he's got a point there that needs to be explored further uh, for those who are kind of supporting the this ecosystem, uh, or at least thinking about that. I mean. You know, it's it's great if you can just build anything whenever you want. Well, there were a lot of solutions that were built at the end of the two thousands, or sorry, the end of you know nineteen nine two thousand, all the e-com bubble, and they all went away overnight because they were at the wrong time. So there is really a question. It's not just sufficient to have an innovation. You have to have innovation that maps to demand at the right time or the the capacity for people to start adopting it. So that's that's another point he made. I, Go, definitely go check out their podcast. They did a great job of articulating this point around maximalism and exploring other ideas. It's a waste of resources to have a solution in search of a problem. But on the other hand, sometimes some very successful products and people and products have created solutions and convinced us it was a problem that we had when we didn't even realize it. And I'm thinking of the iPod. You know, I don't know that anybody was really clamoring for a new storage device that could hold billions of songs but uh, yeah. we we got it and we realized it was a problem we we didn't know we had so so i think there's there's a balance there i mean the innovators can't just sit around and constantly wait for the market to say we have this problem we need a solution sometimes the innovators have to come up with the solution first um but you Absolutely. don't want to put so many resources into it that you're taking away from making the solutions for the problems you have now better mm -hmm. yep so we're going to link to uh, mental supermodels. It was episode 17, Maximalism Response to Mental Mentally Unscripted. And then I've got a few uh, other articles linked here in the notes. Anything else? No, everyone just go out there and uh, buy up some Bitcoin yeah. so we can, we can take it all up to, to the uh, <laughs> the crazy price. Yeah. What, what, the only last thing I'll say is I really enjoy conversations about Bitcoin and crypto that isn't just price. You can get those all day long. That's all everyone's talking about. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Everyone likes to see the price go up, right? There's a great podcast uh, with traders uh, called Up Only, right? I get it. I totally get it. But if the, if that all, if, if there's so much more to to what's happening here, um, and you, you, I love the fact you brought up just the self sovereignty. Like there, there's a massive discussion of what this can be. What's the possibility for it? Um, that just needs to be constantly uh, discussed, debated, understood, refined. And so I'm glad we're doing that. I'm glad we're contributing to that in a, in a good, positive way. Yeah, definitely. And folks, if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, your neighbors, your neighbor's friends, anybody you can think of. Uh, we're really working hard to uh, grow this grow this thing, grow this community, and go out to the mentallyunscripted.com website, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we missed a couple weeks because 
uh, you know, we weren't sure where Stefan was. He was <laughs> off uh, doing his secret agent thing or whatever. Secret uh, agent man, yeah. He's, he's back now, so I'm going to start cracking the whip and make him get back to putting that together. And don't don't even ask why I, I didn't just pick up the slack and do it for him while he was gone. <laughs> that's that's not a fair question. Don't to ask questions will, with, with yeah, obvious answers. I, I will cancel you. <laughs> I, will, I will remove my music off of Spotify if you ask that question. Um, so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in. We appreciate it. Go out to mentallyunscripted.com. Let's get some comments going, get some conversations. And I've got my email address in the show notes now. So feel free to shoot me an email if you have any questions or, or comments. And if anybody has ideas for interesting people you'd want to hear on the podcast, let us know, get us hooked up with them and we'll work on getting them scheduled. And with that, anything else, Stefan? No, that's it. Be good. Be well. We, uh, we look forward to our next chat with you guys. Awesome. We'll see you guys next week.